Board. Welcome to episode 37 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us on the podcast for his third appearance is Mr. Matt Piercy. Welcome back, Matt. Uh, thanks for having me. It's it's nice that we finally whittled it down from like 170 issues to six issues to one issue. We got there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for those of you who didn't recall or didn't just clue in, Matt first joined us for the Clone Saga, which is easily the largest story that made the list. He then joined us again for the Avengers Disassembled story arc. So now he's back for Thunderbolts issue number one. So this was written by Kurt Busiek, penciled by Mark Bagley, inked by Vince Russell, colored by Joe Rosas, lettered by Comic Crafts Dave and Oscar, edited by Tom Brevoort under Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris, cover dated April 1997 and released on February 19th, 1997. And as we said in the introduction, this was number 37 on the top 75. So before we get into it, we probably should say a couple of things. Number one, if you as a listener do not know why this particular issue made the list <laughs> or what the concept of the Thunderbolts is, stop listening now and track it down. Much like Alpha Flight number 12, this is one of those issues, spoiling a little bit about the quality that we usually get into later in the discussion. It's good from page one to the end, but it made the list because of the last two pages. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you are unfamiliar with what happens in those last two pages, don't spoil it for yourself. Track down this issue. The last podcast ended with a detailed list of every place you can find it, including the Marvel Digital Limited app, which is probably the cheapest way to get it right now, at least in the legal terms. So yeah, really track it down before we get much further. I, I bought it off the Marvel app for $1.99 because, I mean, I have the trade and I have the original issue, but I don't want to look for it. It's just so much easier to, <laughs> it's worth $1.99 of my time to, to just have it here. Yeah, I have it in one of the trades and on the Marvel Digital Limited app. And I may have it through Comixology. I don't remember if it was one of those 700 first issues free during the South by Southwest promotion. A little unclear about which ones were in there because I heard about it and got them all. Yeah. But in any event, from here, we should probably get to the plot synopsis. I just give a summary of what happens before we get into the significance of this. We often do it the other way around, but that would be, as we said, massive spoilers because those last two pages... I don't know. I'm, you said that you have the original issue. So did you pick it up as it came out? I did. I actually I actually picked up the whenever they first showed up in Hulk. Okay. Uh, I think it was 449. It came out a few months before that. And I was so excited that we we're going to get like a brand new team, you know, all new characters. We'll get into that later. <laughs> but I picked up that. So I had some familiarity with them. Uh, and then I picked up Thunderbolts number one. I think it was from Kroger. Back when they actually had like a spinner rack, you know, the good old days. Yeah. yeah. So just to set the stage before we get into the plot synopsis itself, this was during the era when Marvel was fighting off bankruptcy. They had gone to San Diego Comic Con by sending two interns who already lived in San Diego with, you know, a threefold poster board and a Sharpie marker because that's the money they had left. And to think that's all Marvel had at San Diego Comic Con is incredible. It tells you exactly what kind of situation the company was in. And now they're so big what they I didn't they didn't even go to last Comic-Con, right? I don't think they did anything. Marvel Comics did, Marvel Movie Studios did not. Oh, okay. Yeah. That line is blurring more and more every day. <laughs> it is. So, anyway, they had a few things that they were doing to try and recover. One of the things they did 
was a crossover between the X-Men and the Avengers called Onslaught. And suffice it to say, Onslaught did not make the list of 75 greatest stories. The fallout was Heroes Reborn, in which a few of Marvel's biggest characters and titles were outsourced. So for a year, another company was running them as they were off in their own separate universe. It actually, all those Heroes Reborn stories lasted 13 issues. They eventually came back with Heroes Rebirth and Marvel brought them back under their own fold. But a lot of the reason they did that experiment was as a cost-saving measure. The initial contract was 13 issues. They had the option to extend it, but it wasn't as profitable for Marvel as they'd hoped. And by the time that that contract was done, they realized they could do it cheaper in-house and more profitably in-house. So they brought them back into the fold and didn't renew that contract. But during that time, those characters that were farmed out to the third party were not available in the Marvel Universe. So if you were still writing in the main continuity with your Spider-Mans, with your very different Hulk, because Bruce Banner had made the jump, the Hulk had not. They were separated. So there was a rampaging Hulk going around. No Fantastic Four. None of the active Avengers. You know, as we'll see by the time this issue's done, Black Widow stuck around, but a lot of the others are gone. So there was a bit of a void. And the Thunderbolts were one of the teams that cropped up to fill in that vacuum. So as Matt already indicated, we see them operating as a team in a couple of guest shots in other comics before they finally get their own title. So we knew that, you know, Atlas, Citizen V, Mach 1, Meteorite, Songbird, right? We knew that these guys were out there and they were operating, but that's all we knew. They would show up to help a hero save the day and then disappear again, much like the New Warriors did in the two issues of Thor that introduced them at a similar time a few years earlier. And for the most part, this issue is no different. So they are the main characters, but they're not the point of view characters for a lot of the issue. It starts off with a quick recap of Onslaught. So if you're reading it for the first time, the stage is set. You know these guys are gone. As Megan McLaren, the reporter, is talking, you know, there's an innocent bystander who gets kidnapped by someone. That's not a big part of this issue, but it's clearly being set up for story arcs later. And Megan McLaren is just giving a rundown of some of the threats that are still out there in the absence of the Avengers. So we've got the subterranean lava men, Blastar, the Frightful Four. She continues on to mention that most of the Masters of Evil are at large, and then it cuts from there to discussions elsewhere about, well, who's going to save us with the Avengers and Fantastic Four and these guys gone. Then we see the Rat Pack, the mercenary group in operation. Citizen V shows up with the rest of the Thunderbolts, and they handle them pretty well. Although, you know, we see that Techno is not following orders, and that's causing issues between himself and Atlas. They get the attention of Dallas Riordan through the mayor's office, and they manage to handle the Rat Pack fairly effectively and bring them in. Now, they have their own home base above Selena's Pizzeria, and, you know, Techno is complaining about why we're in this dive. You know, there's Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus have hidden bases all over the city. Why don't we do them? And Citizen V is saying we are not going to abandon subways and warehouses. We get the impression that Songbird... And Meteorite and some of these other guys don't necessarily always get along. They do a, a bit of a public persona. And Citizen V actually does a very good job of presenting the team from a political standpoint. So he talks about the terrible loss the world has suffered. You know, they're a little bit vague about who they are and their origins and that they're protecting their identities. You know, they're, he is the grandson of the Citizen V that was active during World War II. He wants to, you know, spread the word and just help things. The individual interviews go, you know, well or not well for a variety of reasons. But before they can give these reporters a tour of their base, the Rat Pack come out again, this time luring them into combat with the Wrecking Crew. Now, the Wrecking Crew are tougher opponents. And, you know, there's a, a pretty challenging fight around Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. The Thunderbolts do eventually come out on top. 
They've been asked by Dallas Riordan to work directly with the mayor's office and become sort of figureheads for the city. We get man-on-the-street opinions from Spider-Man, the New Warriors, and the Black Widow, who are all saying, you know, hey, we don't know these guys, but from what we can see, they're fighting the good fight and they've got our support. And then we get to those last two pages. So again, if you don't know what happens, turn the podcast off now, come back when you've read it. But the Thunderbolts are back in their home base. Citizen V has taken the current mask off, and he's got a pretty hideous deformed face, at which point he pulls out his old mask, that of Helmut, the 13th Baron Zemo, leader of the Masters of Evil, and that's when we learn that this whole thing is a plot by the Masters of Evil. You know, Fixer became Techno, Beetle became Mach 1, Screaming Mimi became Songbird, Goliath became Atlas, and Moonstone became Meteorite, just as Baron Zemo became Citizen V. So this is a team of supervillains, and gaining the public's trust as in the form of heroes is part of their master evil plan. And at this point, they are not truly heroes. They are a group of villains out of the mask. And this is something, getting into our personal histories, by the time I read this issue, it was long after the fact and the ending had been spoiled for me. Oh, it had already been spoiled for you? Yeah. Because oh. it was, this was, you know, after Hawkeye had come and gone by the time I learned about the team. Oh, okay. Because they launched at a time I wasn't collecting. I got back in when the movies came out. As a newer reader at the time, I had never read where the Masters of Evil come over, take over uh, Avengers Mansion. So as far as the Masters of Evil and like the Avengers, I got that they were this big bad. That I understood. So I think I did get like the gravity of the situation at the end. But I think having, if I had read those Avengers issues and had more of a familiarity with it, it probably would have hit me harder, but... It still blew my mind whenever I first read it. Yeah, and to hear Dan Slott talk about it, I've heard him talk about it on Word Balloon, and mostly in the context of Amazing Spider-Man 700, kicking off the Superior Spider-Man era that we've discussed earlier in this podcast series. And one of the things he loved about this is that it was a time when you could promote comics without spoiling them. Yeah. And he said the really amazing thing was that people in comic shops who read it and hit that last page, by and large did not spoil it for their friends. It's the kind of thing, if you're in the collector shops, you might have friends saying, no, seriously, you need to pick up this title. You don't understand. But not saying they're actually the masters of evil. Just saying, no, this is a must read. And that's all I'm going to tell you. It was one of the last big secrets that was actually kept until the day of publication. And that's that's completely why it's on this list. I mean, it, it's a fun issue. They fight some people, talk to the press. I mean, it's not crazy stuff going on here. It's kind of by the book, setting up the team, you know, nothing super crazy until that last two pages. And that's completely, like you said, why it's on the list. Yeah. I mean, when you've got Kurt Busiek writing and Mark Bagley on pencils, you're going to have a good comic. Oh, yes. But not necessarily one of the 75 best. And even this is top 40 best, according to the voters. Like, it was just, yeah, unfortunately, I'm, by the time I read it, that last page didn't have the impact that it should have had, had I been reading it off the stands in 1997. Now, were you told who they were, or were you just told, hey, they're bad guys? Yeah, I I knew that the team was the Masters of Evil. Oh, okay. And that's the, my, the first exposure I had to the Thunderbolts were people talking about current issues. When Hawkeye was trying to lead them on the path to redemption, they mm-hmm. would choose well after this issue, right? At this point, they are doing the outright evil thing. I'm told that later on, they say, you know what? Maybe there's... There's some credit and this hero thing is worthwhile, but they hadn't come to that realization yet And in, in this issue. When you read this issue, read it, take a day, go back and read it again. There's so many little 
things that Kurt Busiek puts in here. He flat out mentions the Masters of Evil like, they, we don't know where they are. They're still out there. Well, they're right in front of you. Yeah, and that's actually the last group of supervillains that they mentioned, but he may, takes care to mention three or four groups. Mm-hmm. So they don't necessarily stand out. I believe that other writers understanding structure, if they're analyzing what they're reading, other writers would go, oh, is that why he put them there? Then it might sort of put the thought in their heads that you could pick out by their powers if you're already familiar with the Masters of Evil. Mm -hmm. But one of the nice touches about this is that when they drew the Masters of Evil, it does not include team members who are actually in the Thunderbolts. Right. And the artwork does include characters who didn't make the team. So you don't get that one-to-one -one correspondence that would help you connect those dots. But it is enough that if Thunderbolts was your first comic, you would understand the Masters of Evil are bad guys. Mm -hmm. And they're big enough bad guys that when the reporter's saying, look, there are some serious threats out there and gives you a short list of three or four groups, they make the list. Yeah. And they start with the Lava Men. We start low. We get a little higher with the Frightful Four, you know. And then, yeah. you know, at the top is the Masters of Evil. Yeah. So it is a very well-constructed issue. You got to give credit to everyone involved that this was a secret until publication. Mm -hmm. That just says so much. And can, can we just talk about the audacity of Citizen V? His quote, yes, I'm the grandson of the original Citizen V who fought fascism, keyword fascism, <laughs> during World War II. I hope I can do half as well as my grandfather did. If you look up, you know, you can do a little research. Uh, the original Citizen V was John Watkins. If you don't know, he was an Englishman who helped out the resistance in Nazi-occupied France. And who was he killed by? Baron Heinrich Zemo. So that's, there's so much, that's why I say you read this a second time, because there's so much little detail that Busiek puts in. I mean, just kind of layers after layers. Yeah, that is Busiek. Like I said, the, the structure and the care in this are so crystal clear. On that, That's true across the board. So yeah, this has to be one of the standouts of 1997, I would think. Just looking at where the comic industry was in general in that year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I get why that's there. And I mean, the impact that this has had, this launched a title and the Busiek run on Thunderbolts is heralded as one of the best, right? Everyone I've talked to who's read Thunderbolts says that, yeah, it's worth reading right from issue one at least until Busiek leaves. There's a difference of opinion on Thunderbolts after Busiek leaves until they get rebooted as a wrestling team, then everyone says, don't bother. Yeah, it, it, it devolves. It definitely devolves into some weird, some weird stuff. Go, go back and read these first issues. They also launched new Thunderbolts with uh, Fabian Nicieza, and it was kind of coming back to the core team. And I think they added Blizzard. You know, they had a couple of new members and I thought it was really good as well. And it, it kind of mm -hmm. captured that. I mean, part of that mystique from the first, from the first run, but once you hit that big twist, it's kind of it's kind of over after that. Yeah. Do you think uh, there was any other writer that could have pulled that off other than Busiek at the time? Well, I I have actually yet to read a Fabian Nicieza comic I haven't enjoyed. Mm -hmm. So I I totally believe you when you say when he came in it it was good again, although perhaps not as good. But then again, I'm I'm not going to say that no other writer could pull it off, but the list of those who could is very very short. I just uh, whenever I first started reading Avengers, it was Kurt Busiek. And I don't know, I just, I feel like with that history kind of even added to it here, he's now writing the villains that were plaguing his heroes for so long. And now he's trying to get them to be heroes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I believe that he was even doing this before he wrote the Avengers because he started with the Avengers after the, the heroes reborn when they came back mm -hmm. to earth. So he was already on the Thunderbolts before he had the Avengers. 
And do we do we want to mention there? I know this is in future issues, but right now their headquarters is what above a pizzeria. Do we want to say where their next headquarters is? <laughs> Which is another reason I loved the Thunderbolts. Yeah, this is one where you could make a case not just for issue one being on the the list, but I think for the first story arc. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because it, it's not long before they're in the Four Freedoms Plaza. Yep. So again, the Fantastic Four are not in town, and the Thunderbolts have taken over their headquarters with permission of the city. So which is something I first learned when when I got all the DVD-ROMs as they were coming out and realized, hey, I've got the entire Heroes Reborn, Heroes Rebirth thing. Let's, you know, check it out and see what, you know, if it's really as bad as people say. Spoilers, not quite, but close. <laughs> so... That was that was another little thing that blew my mind uh, about that is that they moved into Four Freedoms Plaza and then even in issue one you I mean Fixers complaining about you know their headquarters now and you know he needs more technology and all well Four Freedoms Plaza is definitely the place to go if you want that it is yeah and it was it definitely has an impact on the Fantastic Four when they return after that mm-hmm. because they are effectively homeless when they come back. You know, following Onslaught and the Heroes Rebirth, much of which seems to be their son's fault. But anyway, that is a different story. <laughs> but yeah, so the impact this had on the industry, not only was this the last big shock ending that was kept quiet for a long time, or one of the last, you know, this introduced a new team to the Marvel Universe, which really pulled into redemption. My understanding is that as things develop, it does a lot for Hawkeye to flush him out into a multidimensional character. You know, just as people remember, Hawkeye started as a villain, as did Black Widow. Black Widow because of brainwashing Hawkeye, because he had the hots for Black Widow and was just going along with whatever she wanted. <laughs> but yeah, Black Widow and Hawkeye were introduced as Iron Man villains. And Hawkeye recognized the potential in the Thunderbolts that some of them were waking up to the benefits of being the hero and still being out there. And he assumed leadership of the team to help push them down that path and give them that chance that the Avengers gave him way back early in the run, back when the Avengers were Captain America and three reformed villains. Yep. And they really play into that in later issues, which it, it just fits perfectly. Yeah. So as we progress, I mean, we do talk about what this means for the industry, you know, what the impacts it has and what messages and meanings. This issue in isolation does not have the meanings and messages that will be conveyed by the time Kurt Busiek leaves the run, right? That, that whole redemption arc is not a glimmer here. Mm-hmm. Bushiak had it planned, but the characters were not thinking in those terms in any way, shape, or form. This was their master plan to gain public trust before their big evil plan came to fruition. But yeah, aside from being one of the last teams introduced, that's still in publication today. I mean, the new warriors have come and gone. The Thunderbolts have been rebooted a couple of times, but it's only in the past handful of years, I think the past two or three years, that Marvel has not actually been publishing a Thunderbolts title in one shape or another. Mm-hmm. Right? It was the numbering on this book that continues as the Thunderbolts crossed over during Civil War and went through some of those those later crossovers, including Secret Invasion, Dark Reign, a lot of those books. You know, when Marvel was doing the all-new Marvel Now, the Thunderbolts got a reboot then, but they continued to publish. And there was a time early when Bill Jameis was publisher of Marvel when you know he was pushing through some of his ideas as we've mentioned in other storylines and other podcasts. But there was a time when he decided that, you know, they needed a comedy book in the line based on Mexican wrestlers. No. <laughs> they didn't really have space to add another title to the publishing schedule because it was still coming out of bankruptcy. So he just decided to 
take one of their lower performing titles and transform it into his Mexican wrestler comedy. So Thunderbolts got targeted and that lasted for, I think, partway through the second story arc, maybe? Mm, it was not long at all. <laughs> I want to say about maybe 10 issues. Yeah. It's essentially it was there long enough to have the sales figures in, not just for the first few issues, but also for the trade paperback pre-orders. At which point they had enough ammunition to tell Bill Jameis, this is a bad idea, make it stop. <laughs> which led to the you see as a reboot that Matt's already mentioned here. And I only mentioned that one uh, because that, I think, is the most faithful to the original idea. Uh, we had Warren Ellis take it over during that kind of dark rain period mm -hmm. when it was all villains who did not care about redemption, really, except for Speedball, who was Penance at the time, which was that was a whole thing. But um, even when it was then, the book was still good. Even when it was still all villains, it didn't have anything to do with that idea. But as far as reading the issues, it was still a good story. And then later on, we had Luke Cage, and it's kind of coming back to that core concept, but it's still not quite there. But I haven't read those personally. I've read like maybe one or two, but I've only heard good things. I think it was Jeff Parker and uh, Kev Walker, mainly. Yep, I, I actually read it continuously from... From the Civil War crossover to the end of that volume before the reboot. Okay. And there there was a lot of good stuff in there. You know, there's, uh, especially with the other Black Widows. So yeah, I mean, this would go on in the the deeper meanings, the section of the podcast that I've shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Which is a great, great show. Check it out if you haven't. Oh, yes. That's one. If you have even a passing interest in Star Trek, it's worth listening to because they do go through everything at length. And I have... Great conversations, not just about the great episodes, but about the not-so-great episodes. And finding things in them that help sort of redeem them in their eyes when you sit down and study and see, mm -hmm. you know what, th these were the ideas that brought it into the Star Trek fold and why it was part of the series in the first place. But yeah, this one, looking at this issue in isolation, which is what I at least try to do in this podcast, the only real message or meaning we have here is don't judge a book by its cover. Only you usually hear that cliche in terms of the, you know, it might be better than you first thought. Give it a second chance mm -hmm. where, you know, this is the flip side. The cover looks great. Absolutely. It's the contents are not great at this stage. Right. This this would have a, a major impact. Do you think a better message other than uh, don't judge a book by its covers? Maybe like beware of like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the more fitting cliche. That that gives the the attitude where it's that's what these guys are. Yeah, and especially the way Citizens V plays it. The dialogue for Baron Zero here is beautiful. He's got the political machinations, and he knows you know just like claiming to be the grandson of the first Citizen V, he knows exactly what information he should be feeding the press and how he should phrase it to get them on their side. Was this a little ahead of its time as far as like dealing with the media goes? He even has a uh, individual. Uh, interview set up for each of the teammates like just the way they spin it and i think that's another one uh don't always believe what the media tells you you know and how they mm -hmm. put their spin on it you know yeah it's the first one where it starts to get a little bit sensationalist we've had similar themes showing up in other books like i mean trish tilby and x factor and things like that mm -hmm. but you know aside from probably J. jonah jameson you know the other media representation when they're showing the heroes in a negative light it's written in such a way that the media is telling it the way they see it, and you understand why the limited information set the media members have access to has led them to these incorrect conclusions. Mm -hmm. I mean, J. Jonah Jameson is the exception. The, the original concept behind him was that 
Stan Lee wanted a villain the hero couldn't touch. He wanted that character who was working within the confines of the law, but was still an antagonist. So he was using the editorial columns and that sort of thing, whether it's out of you know jealousy for stealing his son's thunder with the space capsule launch or whatever. But yeah, I think this is one of the first times in, in comics where I've seen people even just manipulating the media as they're looking for that positive story and looking to grab the attention. Here's something we can work with. Mm-hmm. And and Citizen V does that beautifully, the way he works the media. <laughs> yeah, he, he plays them start to finish. And even as they're getting the interviews with Spider-Man and Black Widow and the New Warriors, they're on the spot. And sometimes you get that where it's like, well, you know, I'm not close to the, that situation. Mm-hmm. You know, same profession, never met these guys, but you know what? It looks like they're fighting the good fight. So they got my support. Yep. If we go back to some of the exact quotes, Spider-Man is the one that says, believe me, the Wrecking Crew are no pushovers and I've got reason to know. After the way the T-Bolts handled them, well, they're okay in my book. Uh, Night Thrasher of the New Warriors is saying, we've been working round the clock since the Onslaught tragedy. We're delighted to have some help. The more the merrier. You know, Black Widow says, I think it is a very good thing that new champions arise when others have fallen. Everyone, based on what they know distilled through the media, this is a very good thing. Mm-hmm. And it's at a time when people needed heroes. Much like the first boom of superhero comics was around the age of World War II. Right. And you had some very tough justice coming from characters like your Golden Age Superman and your Golden Age Batman, where the criminals they dealt with didn't necessarily survive the encounters. And, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, snapping a Kryptonian's neck. I'm talking about, you know, talk woman or I'll break your hands <sighs> and crushing her wrists just because she has information. Right. This is, you know, it was a, a very different era for heroes because, you know, they're coming out of the Depression going into World War II. The the audience and the, the public responded to characters who would step in and said, no, I'm going to fight for what's right because it's right and give it that push. And this is a, it's a similar state in the Marvel Universe. After Onslaught, some of the major heroes, the Fantastic Four and the Avengers are not the only heroes from the reader's perspective, but those are the ones that have the greatest public credentials. You know, Spider-Man has struggled with the media. The X-Men have struggled with the media. The New Warriors were kind of hit and miss at this point. You know, they got a lot of good press early, but then when one of their members killed his father and went to prison for it, served a sentence, pled guilty, you know, it was hard for the team to recover after that. So yeah, that aspect is played just magnificently by Busiek in this. Yeah, so just to wrap it up, why it landed at this point in the rankings, it was that shocking last couple of pages that elevated it from good to good enough to make this list and in the internet age like we're never going to get another surprise like that it's everything's out there three months ahead of time i mean yeah you you get attempts where they try i mean there was an issue with the flash where they were trying to tease the return of barry allen but it turns out it's professor zoom so they dealt with that with a cover that showed him from reverse so you couldn't see the difference in symbols and it was released in black and white again that led to speculation but it wasn't the confirmation dan slot talked about this in his word balloon interview because you know the end of amazing spider-man 700 and the nature of the superior spider-man had been spoiled you know weeks in advance which was closer to the limit Uh, similarly the the thing that he tried to do for the shock at the end of his first issue of the mighty avengers which is also worth checking out i'm not going to spoil in particular because that's not one we've already spoiled here that was another attempt to get that spoiler but even that leaked out again the media makes it easy to do the anonymous leak When you look at how many hands the comics have to go through, you know, it's not like you're writing a novel and it's just you and your editor before it goes to the printing press. The only one offhand I can think of is maybe the identity of the new Thor, uh, which uh, I'm not going to spoil, but that's kind of the only one that I hadn't heard anything Mm -hmm. about until I actually read the issue and found out myself. But even then, 
me reading the mm-hmm. issues, I kind of knew anyway. But this this was out of nowhere. The Thunderbolts was you had no idea. Yeah, yeah. That's I I wish I could have read it in that context. I wish I could have read it having no idea where that was going, because <laughs> that's got to be that's got to be a shock. Anyway, I think that's about all there is to say about this. I mean, it's it's well worth reading, but a lot of the meat that we would get to in this podcast it actually shows up in later issues. We find out what happens to the girl that was kidnapped. That's another thread. Yeah. Um, in any event, so Matt, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. For those of you who are reading along at home, you can join us next week when we discuss the Steranko run on Nick Fury. So that includes the Nick Fury portions of issues 151 through 168 of Strange Tales. We won't be discussing the Doctor Strange issues other than saying, yeah, they're there. And as well as Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. issues 1 through 3 and 5. Those issues were reprinted partially or totally in S.H.I.E.L.D. issues 3 to 5, the 1973 series. Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., the year 2000 trade paperback. Marvel Masterworks, volume 83, Nick Fury, volume 1. Captain America Special Edition number two, Amazing Adventures number 12, Nick Fury Agents of Shields issues one and two, which is a reprint title from the early 80s, Nick Fury Who is Scorpio, and Grandson of Origins. They are also on Marvel Digital Unlimited, which is where I reread most of them. The Nick Fury issues aren't there, but the Strange Tales issues are. So uh, feel free to rate this show and any other shows that you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcast catcher that's got a rating system. It genuinely does help the podcast get noticed and get the word out. You can join the Facebook discussion forum that we have, and you can share the podcast with friends of yours who you think may be interested. Finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon. The Comic Book Conversation Show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.